Ezra chapter 1 this evening. If you're with us this, mor- uh, this evening, we'll get beyond this morning. If you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now and they have Bibles. Just wave to them and get their attention. And get a Bible into your hands and you'll be able to read along with us tonight and doubly absorb the Word of God as a result of both hearing it and also reading it, seeing it with your own eyes. Come to a new book on our journey through the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, the book of Ezra. And I want to just lay down a little bit of history this evening related to the book. And some of it will be new to you. might even be a little tedious to some. But as we hear it kind of over and over again through the course of our Christian life, pretty soon these books begin to fall into place in our mind and what uh, the theme of the books are and what they ought to bring to our remembrance as we read them. Um, I do have, uh, there are uh, people that I can watch in the congregation. I, I love history, so I, it, it never is uh, tiring to me. But I do have to be aware that not everybody enjoys it as much as I do and these pieces coming together. So there's a couple people that I can look at. They're kind of like the proverbial uh, canary in the mine. When you see them die, you know you're in trouble. You've used up all the oxygen in the room and time to move on. And so you're not completely without hope. And just hold on to that as you uh, listen to the introduction this evening. The book of Ezra really continues the history of the children of Israel, the history of God's people, uh, where it left off in Second Chronicles, where we were last time. And in fact, the first few verses of uh, the book of Ezra are almost identical to the final verses of Second Chronicles there in chapter 36. And if you just turn a page back to the left uh, and you see verse 21, there's a separation of 70 years between verse 21 and uh, of Second Chronicles 36 and then the first verse of the book uh, of Ezra. The book of Ezra is named after a priest and a scribe by the name of Ezra, and he's going to be the main character of the second half uh, of the book. The main character of the first half of the book is a priest by the name of a man by the name of Zerubbabel, and uh, so could have easily just just as easily been called the book of Zerubbabel or Zerubbabel and Ezra. But it's called Ezra, uh, not only because Ezra was uh, a main figure in the book, but probably the author of the book as well. We remember in terms of Israel's history at this point that Israel divided into two kingdoms uh, following the reign of uh, David's son, uh, Solomon. The northern kingdom of Israel broke off from the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom of Israel was headed by a king by the name of Jeroboam. The southern kingdom of Judah was headed by David's uh, or Solomon's son, uh, Rehoboam. And after about a 200-year history of idolatry and disobedience and rebellion against uh, the word of God, the northern kingdom of Israel went into captivity to the Assyrians. It was only a 200-year period that they existed before they were ultimately conquered because of their sin by the Assyrians. And by and large, the southern kingdom of Judah failed to learn the lessons of their brothers to the north, and they proceeded to begin to live a life of rebellion and disobedience to God's word and idolatry, despite the presence of eight good kings, seven kings, eight including David, that periodically brought them up for air once in a while from drowning. And and so they survived before they were ultimately taken captive by the Babylonians for the same reasons uh, 120 years after the northern kingdom of Israel went into captivity. And the uh, rebellious kings of Judah, they forced King Nebuchadnezzar to conquer the city of Jerusalem three times. And by the time he had conquered it the third time, uh, he was pretty upset with these people. And uh, before he left after that victory, he ordered one of his main men to go back and, and basically burn that thing to the ground. Don't even leave a city for me to have to come back and conquer a fourth time. And so they burned down the palaces. They burned down the temple. They burned down the walls. They burned down everything and reduced Jerusalem down to an absolute rubble. Now, in the chronology, 70 years have passed from the end of Second Chronicles to the beginning 
of Ezra. And that 70 year period in Jewish history is known as the Babylonian captivity. And the 70 years of that, that of captivity was prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah uh, that, uh, to Judah during the reign of Jehoiakim in the last kind of days of the southern kingdom of Judah. Jeremiah prophesied that Judah would become, go into captivity to the Babylonians. Jeremiah chapter 25, let me read a few verses for you. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Jeremiah said, because you've not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing and perpetual desolations. And moreover, I will take away from them the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstone and the light of the lamp. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. And so this 70 years fulfilled Jeremiah uh, th this prophecy was fulfilled 70 years uh, after Jeremiah uh, wrote the, the prophecy and, uh, and they went into Babylonian captivity. Now, uh, at the time in which uh, the end of the 70 years occurred, as we're going to see here in just a moment, Cyrus, the king of Persia, he issued a decree allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem in order to uh, rebuild the temple. And that's the subject of the next couple of books of the Bible that we're looking at, the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, the building of the temple, also the rebuilding of Jerusalem itself and its walls. Now, the reason for the 70-year uh, length of the captivity is also given to us in the Scriptures. God had spoken to the children of Israel. It speaks about the importance of obedience to God's word. And, and sometimes we can convince ourselves as we begin, and it's a self-deception, if we begin to disobey God's word and God doesn't hammer us like in the first five minutes, we think, well, he doesn't care. Or he's got like a blind spot toward me. Or I'm the apple of his eye. And the Bible applies to everyone else, but it doesn't really apply to me. And I think because I'm getting away with it for a length of time, that somehow, though God has promised to judge sin in my life and to chasten me for it, that somehow I'm going to get away with it. And they kind of convinced themselves of that. God had spoken in the law of Moses and said, listen, every six years, you just plow the living daylights out of that land of yours. And you grow crops, and I'm going to bless you in the land of Canaan. And on the sixth year, I'm going to give you double of what you would normally harvest. So that on the seventh year, I want you just to leave the land alone. I don't want you to plant wheat. I don't want you to plant uh, any grain or barley. I don't want you to harvest the, uh, in, a, in a professional way any of the orchards. You just let the ground rest. And that's what God uh, wanted them to do. One of the reasons that God did that with them, I mean, there might be very good agricultural reasons for allowing the soil to go dormant kind of for a year, rebuild kind of its, its base and the strength of the soil rather than uh, over uh, harvesting it. Some of those things might have been a part of it. God's usually knocking out uh, two or three things, birds with one stone, you know, all at the same time. But what it was intended to do spiritually was to remind the children of Israel that the land was his, that it belonged to him. And by allowing that land to lay dormant for that seventh year, they were communicating to God, God, I recognize, we recognize that this land belongs to you and you have given it to us. And, and for 490 years, they refused. They got greedy. Wow, if I made this much in six years, think about the car or the house I could buy if I run it in the seventh year. And it's in all of us to do that kind of a thing, apart from God's conviction and his word. So they got greedy and they just planted for 490 years. They planted it year in and year out until they, the land was owed a 70-year rest. So God just stepped in and said, all right, it's owed a 70-year rest. 
You could have given it to me. You could have acknowledged that I am the God of this land by voluntarily obeying my word. Or I'll make you acknowledge that I'm the God of this land by displacing you out of this land for 70 years, which is precisely what he did to them in kind of knocking them off their high horse and out of their pride and letting them, you know, come back to a place of humility in their relationship uh, with the Lord. And so if they wouldn't acknowledge the land belonged to God by keeping the Sabbath year of rest, then he would teach it to them by casting them out of the land. God's promises are always going to come true. And so that's why we always want to make sure that we're on the blessing side of this promises, which is where obedience keeps us. Now, again, Jeremiah also prophesied not only that they would go into captivity for 70 years, but at the end of 70 years, they would be released from that Babylonian captivity and they would be allowed to return to their land, that God would restore them to their land. And so God's prophecy to them in that regard came uh, from the prophet Jeremiah by way of a letter and uh, to the captives of Israel that were already in Babylon at the time of King Zedekiah. And the Lord declared to them, for thus says the Lord, Jeremiah 21 or 29 verses 10 and 11. After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. I'm, gonna, I'm chastening you, giving you a good whooping. I've had to God give you a good spanking. No, I'm all alone in this. Excuse me. I know I'm not. So says, I'm not going to leave you in the doghouse indefinitely. I'm going to drive home this point. We're going to get some things established in our relationship. And then I'm going to bring you back into this land. And then following that promise, one of the most famous verses in the whole Old Testament, God went on to say, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord God, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And the future and hope that he's referring there to there is the fact that their captivity would not be permanent. And so the book of Ezra is a record of that return. I think it's also helpful to know. Let me just look around here and see if I've killed my canary yet. No? Okay. Okay. I think it's also helpful to know that Ezra... And Nehemiah and Esther complete the historical books of the Old Testament. And those three books record God's dealings with the Jews after the Babylonian captivity. Ezra and Nehemiah deal with the remnant that, of Jews that came back into the land of Israel. Esther deals with those uh, Jews who chose not to return to the land of Israel, but they continued to live in the land of their captivity uh, after they had the freedom to leave. Three great Old Testament books to read to get the bigger context of all of this as we're going through it. It's the book of Haggai, uh, Zechariah, and also uh, Malachi, Malachi, uh, to those of you who are Italian, Malachi to everybody else. Now, the, we look at sometimes these historical books and, and sometimes we, as we get into it, and we will get into it, as, as we're reading these, we can think that this has just come out of a lifeless, um, you know, history of an ancient people. And what in the world does it have to do with us today? But the Bible teaches that every, uh, every bit of the Bible it, uh, speaks to Jesus in some way. It's a picture. It's a type. It's a shadow. Uh, of Jesus in some uh, kind of way. And so it, it, it is intended to give us a revelation of Jesus himself. And so this book gives us a revelation of the heart of God, the nature of God, and above all, a, a revelation of Jesus. It not only provides a historical record of what is one of the greatest events in the history of the Jewish people, and that was the return to the land after that Babylonian captivity, um, but it also supplies us with the reason why they were allowed to return. And it is the theme of the book. And the reason why they were allowed to return is encapsulated in a single word, the word restoration. That God is a restoring God. That God is a God of second chances. Maybe no greater example of that in the entirety of the Old Testament. We don't have to be Jewish to appreciate it. They had no hope apart from God that they were going to come, ever come back in and own an acre of that land. You ever live someplace where you just love to live there? 
Your family history goes on for generations in that place. So much is tied there. You just, because of your history with it, you think it's the most beautiful, wonderful place in the whole world. And then you get pulled out of it. And you have no hope of ever seeing it again or your family ever knowing anything about it ever again. And that's the kind of place that they were in. And yet God was gracious to them. And it was him that restored them back to that land. And God is a restoring God. And no sinner can hear that too often. That the God that we serve, it's just a balm to our ears and our heart. The God that we serve is a restoring God. They flubbed big time. Their chastening has made the headlines for 3,000 years. And yet God wouldn't allow it to be the end of the story. He not only restored them back to the land, but he also had purposes for their lives. He's going to bring the, the continue to bring the Hebrew scriptures forward through the Jewish people. He's going to bring the Messiah into the world through these people that returned back to the land. And so God is a God of second chances and this great, great theme uh, of restoration, God still had work for them to do. It doesn't matter how badly we fall in our Christian lives, how muddy we make our legacy at the moment, there is always the opportunity to repent, turn back to God, surrender our lives to Him in a fresh way, and ask Him to restore us to fellowship with Him. And he'll not only restore us to that relationship, but he even has plans for our lives after that failure. And our lives, it doesn't matter whether we kind of go through the entirety of our Christian life and we don't make any kind of headline uh, flubs, you know, in terms of our family or our friends or anything like that, or whether we do that. All of us are going to be trophies of God's grace. We're all going to be to the praise of the glory of his grace, as the Bible teaches And so to know that he's a restoring God and you can't take the theme of restoration, the shadow of it here in the book of Ezra, finding its greatest substance, the cross of Calvary, where God found a way, as we have just even sung this evening, not only to restore a people out of Babylonian captivity and back into the land, but to restore us out of the clutches of sin Adam and Eve delivered us into and to bring us into salvation and forgiveness with God and one day to be as free from sin and freer still from sin than even Adam and Eve were before they sinned. God is a God of restoration. And of course, Jesus takes any great theme of the Bible and gives it, takes it to heights that everything else, of course, is, is but a shadow. Now, just a little bit more biblical history here. The southern kingdom of Judah had gone into captivity in three stages. Again, Nebuchadnezzar was forced to conquer them uh, three different times. And their return from their Babylonian captivity to the land of Israel, that occurred in three stages as well. The first return was led by Zerubbabel in uh, Ezra uh, chapters 1 through 6, as we're going to see in just a moment. This was for the purpose of rebuilding the temple. And uh, then the second return occurs uh, 80 years later, and Ezra chapters 7 through 10 uh, records that under Ezra himself. He comes back not to rebuild the temple. It's already rebuilt by that time, but in order to uh, deal with some lapses in spirituality that were going on among the people. And then the third return occurred several decades later under Nehemiah. And Nehemiah's concern when he came back was to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and also to lead people back into obedience to the Lord. And so that gives us a little bit of a bird's eye view, maybe helps one or two things click into place related to all of this as we're kind of trying to put this Old Testament and its chronology together in, in our lives. Just give somebody a poke next to you and make sure that they're still alive 
uh, through that introduction and we get into the book formally uh, now. Now, the first year in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, uh, the that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jerem might be fulfilled his prophecy. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. And not only did he make the proclamation, but he also put it in writing. And this is the writing of it. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord, his God of heaven, has given to me. Now, for some reason, he recognizes this guy is a uh, he's he is a he is not a, a, a proselyte to Judaism. He is not a follower of the God of the Bible. Uh, he is uh, he is a king that worshipped any and all gods throughout his kingdom. And uh, because he wanted to be, he never knew which one was strongest or which one was truest. And so he just kind of hedged his bets by uh, believing in all of them and worshiping all of them. But he recognized by some revelation from God that he had been allowed to come to power as as a leader of a world ruling empire at the time that the defeat of the establishment of the Medo-Persian Empire, the defeat of the Babylonian Empire, that God was in all of this. And then he went on to say, and he, that is the God of the Jews, has commanded me to build him a house, that is the temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And then he gives the invitation to the Jewish people who among you of all of his uh, who is among you of all of his people. Who of you are Jews? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is at Judah. I release you from captivity. You can return to the land for the purpose of building the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem and whoever is left. In any place where he dwells, in other words, those of you who don't go to rebuild the temple, but you want to stay as Jews uh, in the Medo-Persian Empire, then you can stay here. But just make sure that uh, you give a little help in the form of silver and gold and goods and livestock beside the free will offerings for the building of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And so this was the decree uh, that he gave. Now, uh, the Lord stirred him up uh, to do all of this. The source of the proclamation wasn't Cyrus's idea. It was the Lord's doing. And uh, again, God just stepping into human history the way that he does. And he takes even this Gentile king and, and, be, and, and orchestrates history to serve his purposes. I've always liked this, the, the, I, the, the kind of play with the word history, really meaning his story. Uh, history is God's story. And God does whatever he needs to in his sovereignty to rule and to overrule uh, anything that's going on in the world so that what he has declared will be the history of mankind is what ends up being accomplished. That's important to know when you watch the news these days. You see fires and this war and rev insurrect everything all over. I mean, you see, where in the world can you find peace in the whole wide world and to realize that God is sovereignly directing History. He moves it however he needs to move it so it has his God-appointed end. God is in charge of, of human history. doesn't mean that he's responsible for the choices of what everybody makes, but he makes sure that it, it moves his purposes forward uh, in, uh, in the world. Now, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, following the conquest of, of the Babylonians by Cyrus, uh, he was shown the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 44, uh, which had been written 200 years earlier, 150 years before Cyrus was even born, where God prophesied through Isaiah the prophet that a man named Cyrus would restore the Jews to their land and allow them to rebuild uh, their temple. And, uh, and that passage in that prophecy is given in Isaiah chapter 45. Uh, verses one through three. And and uh, Josephus declares that when Cyrus heard of this prophecy of the Lord of him in, in taking the position that uh, that that he now had, then it caused him to in earnest allow the Jews to return back to the land 
and uh, to rebuild this temple. So he felt uh, something special related to the God of the Bible uh, as a result of that uh, prophecy. And so here is this uh, great event, this decree, and the decree is an absolute miracle of God uh, for them uh, to return. And, and so uh, he allows them to return, exhorts these people that are left to give whatever they can to the people that are returning so that they'll have the financial resources to build the temple and, and then also to establish themselves once again in the land. The, the response of the people is in verse 5 to this decree. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, the southern tribes of, of Judah, uh, of Israel, down toward uh, Jerusalem, they were the most kind of uh, directed by the Lord to jump in on this and take advantage of it. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, they arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And so we're told that the heads of the houses of um, Judah and Benjamin, the priests, the Levites, they stepped forward. And then we're told, in addition to them, all those whose uh, uh, spirits God had moved. And so we see what God is doing here. He's got, uh, I mean, I, we don't know, I don't know how many people in, in Medo-Persia at this point in time of Jews. What he does is he just reaches in and he just selectively, by his spirit, begins to put it on the heart of people to return to the land. He didn't do that to everyone. So we can't look at the people that remained in Persia and didn't go to, the, to Israel and to rebuild the temple and say they're a bunch of slackers. What was wrong with them? Nothing wrong with them at all. It was this 50,000 that are going to end up going. They had a prompting and a directing from the Lord. In, in their spirit to rise up and take advantage of the offer that had been uh, given to them. So important to just heed the promptings of the Holy Spirit. The more that is left in the hands of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, the better. If you knew how much on a on a physical level, on a carnal level, if you knew how much of this church operates solely because the Holy Spirit keeps it held together and moving forward, you'd probably be horrified. Our organizational chart is so simple. Uh, the structure, the, uh, how, nobody's hanging over anybody else's head, not in terms of staff here, not in terms of ministry around here. We just depend upon the Holy Spirit to touch people's hearts, to do certain things, give them the room to be successful in that, oversee it to be sure, but allow that ministry of the Holy Spirit to occur. Okay? And never get in the way. When somebody feels like the Holy Spirit's prompting them to do something, a leading of the Spirit, I never get in and, and jump in and kind of poo-poo the idea with them. I want everybody to hear the Lord and obey the leading of the Holy Spirit. I think it's very unwise to try and constrain someone to do something without them sensing the leading of the Holy Spirit uh, on their own. So manipulation is out, constraint is out, emotionalism is out, programs uh, are out. I don't think you can do a worse thing to a Christian than to talk them into doing something that they do not have the leading of the Holy Spirit to do. That's why on the Sundays or whenever and we make known needs that may be in the children's ministry or in Team 56 as we did this morning or whatever they might be, we just let people know about those needs. We don't say, now if you're any kind of Christian, or let's go ahead and just take care of that need right now. I want to see five hands so we feel, we don't just don't do any of that kind of stuff. Because you can get slaughtered in Team 56, without the leading of the Holy Spirit, you put yourself in there. They're just fifth and sixth graders. But fifth and sixth graders aren't the fifth and sixth graders you remember. When you were a fifth and sixth grader, everything's changed. They're better. Oh, you, you thought I meant you were better. 
I did. I'm playing with you now. So I can use a little guilt and condemnation too. God doesn't, but I do. But that, that whole thing of just leaving it with the Holy Spirit for him to direct. And so this was a spirit uh, move and, and a directing of these people. And then all of those who were around them, they weren't going to go into Jerusalem. They encouraged them with articles of silver and gold and goods and livestock with precious things beside all that was willingly offered. And so they remained behind, but they wanted to make sure they had the resources to be successful. And both of them are equally necessary. I think it's a, I think it's a wise thing for missionaries. You know, there's something about whatever God's calling is on our lives. Um, there's this thing I call it, you know, gift elevation, whatever gift of the Holy Spirit God has given me or whatever calling is he's given me. That's the most important in the whole universe. Because that's what he's called me to do. I'm that I'm that selfish and self-centered. So everything else looks a little bit less to me in my flesh. I'm just saying if I if I go into the flesh on that. But it's all important. And I think with missionaries, sometimes I've sat through so many missionary presentations and all. And I'm just I'm just made to feel like dirt under the toenail of the body of Christ because I'm not going some exotic place to share the gospel. You're called to do that. Go do that. Let me know what your needs are. And then let me listen to the Lord related to what those needs are. But the whole thing, the sending and the senders, all of it's necessary. And all of it is very, very spiritual. And all of it under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And King Cyrus, he chipped in. This guy was, he just didn't talk. He put his money where his mouth was. And he brought out of the articles of the house of the Lord which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and he put and put them in the temples of his God and King Cyrus, the king of Persia. He brought them out by the hand of uh, Mithridath and the treasure and he counted them out uh, to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah, probably a, a Persian name given to Zerubbabel. So here's what Nebuchadnezzar did. He conquered the whole known world in those days. And so he conquers all these lands. They got all these different gods that they're worshiping. So he comes in and he conquers Jerusalem three times and he takes all of the wealth of the temple and he built a temple in Babylon to store all of the goods that he had looted from all of the other temples. So all this stuff is in storage. And Cyrus says, go get all of the stuff that was stripped away, that was used in the worship of God in Jerusalem and bring that because I want to put that in the hands of the Jews. So when they build that temple, they got something from the first temple. Now, you put yourself in the place of those Jews. You're going to be given these platters and these knives and all that we're going to read about in just a moment. And you have in your hands the connection between the old temple and then the new temple that you're going to build, what it must have meant to them. It's a great, great treasure that he's given to them. And the number of them was this. 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives. This is really amazing attention to detail. God, he knew where all of it was. All right, I only, there's, there's only 28 knives here. I know he took 29. Don't ever steal from God. 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. And all the articles of silver, of gold and silver, were 5,400. All these, uh, Sheshbazar uh, took with the captives uh, with, uh, who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. And so 2,499 uh, items are listed here. A total of 5,400. The smaller items weren't listed. That was given to them now to, to take back to Jerusalem. Now, these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. And so he's going to begin to list now all of the uh, the, the 50,000 that returned uh, to back to the land uh, to build uh, the temple. And there's so many names. We look at these names and you think, oh, and some of you are sitting here. Is he going to read those names? 
<laughs> I just hate to pass up any word in the Bible. I just really do. I'm not going to read all of the names, though. But I, don't you go to sleep tonight until you read all of those names. I'm just kidding. So he lists all of these names of who, who is going to uh, uh, go back. And, and it's interesting. God prompts by the Holy Spirit. I want you to be a part of this work. And then he notices who obeys the prompting of his Holy Spirit. And they end up on this list. Again, this is all a type and a shadow of a bigger thing, a more important thing. And the bigger list to be on is the book, uh, uh, the Lamb's Book of Life, where the, Bible, where the Bible declares that in that Lamb's Book of Life, every person that has put their faith in Christ is listed in that, that book. That's the most important book to find our name listed in. The Bible is very, very good. I, I, I can't tell you how many times I read this looking for some Scottish name or Kyle somewhere in here, and I couldn't find it. It's an honor to have your name in the Bible, of course. But the great, most important place to have our name found is in the book of life. And you know, if I could, if there was a way for me to be brought to stand right before that book of life tonight in this instant, you the same way, I'd be able to look all the way down, K, 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 Y, K, Y, K, Y, K, Y, L, K, Y, L, K, Y, L, there he is. My name is in the book of life because of my faith in Christ. And your name is there, too, if you've trusted in him. And if you haven't, why don't you do that this evening? And so here is the listing of those that have become uh, that uh, become headed that way, made this list. And those who came with Zerubbabel were Jeshua. Uh, uh, he was a high priest at the time. Nehemiah. This is not the Nehemiah that the book is um, uh, uh, named after uh, Sarah, uh, this guy, Mordecai, not the same Mordecai as the book of Esther, and then these others listed. And so he lists these 11 leaders that led the expedition. Now, these men, it's interesting, these men were very, very successful and powerful men among the Jews in, in Persia. And yet they had the prompting of the Lord to lay that aside and head off and and do this thing that God had called him to do. You've got to remember, it wasn't like, okay, listen, I want you all to go to Hawaii, and uh, I want you to build a hut and uh, live there on, you know, on, on the beach or something like that. For, this was, they had to make a 900-mile journey to get there, to return to a city that is virtually demolished. So there's a lot. These people are giving up the comfort of of uh, of, of Persia at this point in time in order to do that. Now, remember, we're going to see they've got animals and all kinds of things. And so God spoke to Jeremiah and said to them, now, listen, at the beginning of the 70 years of captivity, he said, just settle in. Don't fight against the Babylonians. You're going to be here for 70 years. So settle in. Make yourself prosperous, build your houses, have children, have families. You're going to be brought into the land. Go ahead and prosper where you are. And they did prosper. And they're willing to leave the comfort of that circumstance to obey the leading of the Holy Spirit to go now and lead this expedition. And not only was the listing of these 11, but then we're given a listing of kind of regular folk like you and I and the number of the men of the people of Israel. And then he begins to uh, list them by their families in uh, verse 3 all the way through verse 20. Uh, people are listed in the numbers that came from that bloodline according to their parentage or according to their families or or clans, uh, 15,604 came. And then in verse 21, uh, another listing of people based upon uh, their hometown. And so in those days, you were known. Today, we walk up to somebody and we say, well, I don't know anything about them. Uh, what's the one, two, three questions I would ask to know something significant about them? Uh, what do you do for a living? So our identity is in titles, our identity is in income, our identity is in what we drive. It's materialistic, it's surface compared to the ancient world. In those days, who you were, your roots, went back to one of two things. 
to your family. What family do you come from? And number two, what's your hometown? Where'd you come from? What city? And so that's why they're listed uh, in this way. And so in verses 21 through 35 is a listing of all of the people that came from these various cities. Uh, 8,540, I'll save you counting them, uh, from the 21 towns and villages uh, that were listed. Now, the interesting thing in that listing, at least it's interesting to me, uh, the, uh, is that Jerusalem isn't listed in that listing of the, of the cities. And so what it makes people uh, think is that then all of those people that were listed by parentage in verses 3 through 20, that they all came from Jerusalem. And so that's why it wasn't mentioned. And then it moved on to cities uh, in in dealing with lesser well-known cities. And then in verse 36 through verse 39, there's the listing of the number of the priests, the son of uh, Jediah of the house of Jeshua, 973 of the sons of Immer, 1,052, the sons of Pasher, three very significant families in that bloodline, 1,247, and the sons of Harim, 1,017. And so a total of 4,289. The reason I mention that is because the, the priests constitute about 10% of the returning population. It's a spiritual work that they're going to do to rebuild the temple. And so they really stepped up in a, in a big, big way. And then in verse 40 through 54, there's the numbering of the Levites who returned. You notice in verse 40 it says the Levites, uh, and it lists uh, several names there, 74 being the number uh, from those descendants. And then in verse 41, it lists the singers among the Levites. You remember the Levites were kind of the deacons of the Old Testament. The priests handled the spiritual things. The Levites handled kind of the physical uh, labor of things. And among the Levites, there were the singers, uh, the sons of Asaph, descendants of that great psalmist, 128. And then also in verse 42, the listing of the sons of the gatekeepers who were also numbered among the Levites. And then in verse 43, there's the listing uh, of the Nethanim. And these uh, these speak about people that come from UFOs. And I'm just kidding. Just totally, totally joking. Does anybody get that joke? No. Okay. just as well. So the Nephinim, it literally means the dedicated ones. Now, when David was establishing worship uh, in preparation for the building of the temple under his son Solomon, he kind of founded an order of assistants who were then to help the Levites. And so this was this group of people that had been uh, in place since the time of David. And so it's the listing of these helpers of the Levites, though they were not Levites uh, themselves. And then in verse 55, the sons of Solomon's servants uh, are listed. So apparently Solomon, when he became a king, this is just great trivia, by the way. I love it. I hope I'm not killing you. Don't answer me whether I am or not, because it won't stop me. I've been doing this for a long time, and it hasn't worked yet. So there's these sons of Solomon's servants. He established an order of servants that were, according to certain bloodline, that he used to help in governing the nation of Israel. And so this group of people had maintained an identity and a bloodline, and they stepped up in large numbers to be a part of this expedition to Jerusalem as well. And then in verse 59, and these were the ones who came up from Tel Mela, uh, Tel Harsha, uh, Cherub, Adan, and Immer, but they could not identify their father's house or their genealogy, whether they were of Israel. The sons of uh, Deleiah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 652. So they came along, but they did not have kind of a paper genealogy to show I'm a descendant of a descendant of a descendant of a descendant of, and thus 
a Jew to go on this expedition. They knew that they were Jews or felt that they were, but they couldn't prove it according to genealogy. But they jumped in under the direction of the Holy Spirit uh, as well. And their family names are mentioned. And then in verse 61, and of the sons of the priests, the sons of uh, Habaiah, the sons of Kaz, the sons of uh, Barzillai, uh, who took a wife of the daughters of uh, Barzillai, the Gileadite, uh, and was called by their name. These sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy, but they were not found, and therefore they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. And the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things till a priest could consult with the Urim and the Thummim. And so uh, they came. They felt that they were... Uh, of the Aaronic line, that they, uh, that they could be priests. But again, they did not have the paperwork to prove that they were descendants of Aaron, and, and so it was in dispute. So Zerubbabel stepped in and said, all right, uh, they can come along, but, but don't let them serve as priests and don't let the, them eat the priestly portion uh, of the sacrifices until we can consult God by means of the Urim and the Thummim, which was the means by which God revealed his will to the children of Israel uh, under that Old Testament covenant. And the whole assembly together was 42,360. So that was the number of the leaders and the priests and the common people that volunteered for this expedition. And then there's the listing of the male and female servants uh, that were belonged to uh, these people. They were 7,337 and they had 200 uh, and they had 200 men and women singers. And so, again, they were prosperous people, many of them able to afford uh, servants, not only that, but considerable livestock. Their horses were 736. It was a big deal to have a horse in those days. Big deal to have a horse today, I suppose. Seems like an expensive hobby. I mean, I'm not saying you can't do it. And people waste money all kinds. Of, I'm just kidding. <laughs> My wife loves horses. She wants to. She, she wants to go to a dude ranch. Somebody enjoyed that. <laughs> you know my wife better than I do. I think it's funny, but she does. She's just a cowgirl at heart. And here she lives in it. We've got a backyard the size of a postage stamp. But um, that's why you've got to go to a dude ranch in Montana or something like that. And so... Uh, the horses, they had horses, a big deal to have horses. Their mules were 245. Their camels were 435. Their donkeys used for transportation, 6,720. So they're people of some means. And some of these things were given to them by others before they left. And some of the heads of the father's houses, when they came to the house of the Lord, uh, which is in Jerusalem, they then offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place according to their ability. They gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas, uh, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. And so of this group of people that came of the 50,000, uh, everyone gave. It was voluntary. They didn't have to do it. But they gave uh, according to their uh, ability toward uh, you know, the, the building of the temple and the priests having the garments that they uh, needed to have. God doesn't list what each person gave. He just says, listen, this is they gave according to their ability. And this was the total of it. God, God doesn't notice the amount that's given. God always notices what it is in proportion to our ability to give in the giving. And so the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim, they dwelt in their cities and all Israel in their cities. And so slightly less than 50,000 uh, of them came uh, for this expedition. And we'll stop there tonight and we'll really pick up the pace next week and do two and a half chapters. <laughs> no, we'll do more than that, maybe. maybe. So we'll stop there tonight. If the worship team comes forward, that would be great. The lessons that are in 
chapters 3 and 4 are so important. I want to savor them. I don't want to just race through them, especially the lessons we find here very early in chapter 3. But tonight, for our purposes, as we've just kind of read the Word of God, and to just think about the Lord tonight, and to think about how good He's been to us, as we sang this morning, been so, so good to each and every one of us. Think about how many second chances He has given you. I know He's given you a lot because He's given me so many second chances. And it just makes me love Him all the more for it. And I never kind of, I try, at least I try not to, I try not to take for granted the fact that my God is a God of second chances. I remind myself, you know, he, does, he didn't have to be this way. What if he was a God of one strike, you're out? I mean, he could have been that. Where would I be tonight? Where would you be tonight? What if he was a God that was three strikes, you're out? Where would, where would any of us be tonight? He's a God of second and third and fourth and so many, many chances. The grace that he extends to us. And how wonderful to realize and how important it is to realize, to be sure of his love for us. Even when he chastens us. And boy, can he be firm when he chastens us. It's a demonstration, a communication of his love for us. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens, the Bible teaches. And to realize tonight that God is a restoring God. No matter where we've been or how much chastening we have endured that there's opportunity to repent tonight, turn back to him. And he still has a plan for our lives. After that, he still has purposes that he wants to accomplish related to the Jews he had for them. And in fact, in the history of the Jews, their greatest achievement in human history would occur following their great failure in that Babylonian captivity. And that great event, the bringing of a Savior into the world through Jewish blood. The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, to bring that Savior. God still was going to use them to do the greatest thing in all of human history. There's always a future and a hope where God is any situation that he's involved in, any life that he is involved in. Let's just give him praise for the glory of his grace in our lives this evening.